my name's Chris. And I'm Chris. And if you're regular listeners to Chris and Chris Review Movies, you'll know that we both we both like films. But not necessarily the same ones. Yeah. This is a podcast where one of us shows the other a movie that we like and the other person uh, maybe ruins it. Or maybe, maybe we just ruin maybe. it for you. <laughs> maybe that's yeah. how we should interpret it. Because we don't seem to be ruining them for each other. I mean, you did ruin Untouchables for me. Mm-hmm. So. That's true. I might have to wait a, a good few years before I can watch that again. Until I've forgotten. <laughs> Until you've forgotten. <laughs> so, so, so we've just watched Shine, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Now, Shine is an Australian film based on the real life story of the pianist David Healthgood. Yes. Now, I saw this film when it came out in the UK. That was at the beginning of 1997. And it was getting it was getting all these awards, and it was very very popular mm. and very big. And I thought, I want to go and see this. I'm not interested. I remember being very touched by it and thinking it was very... It's, it's a very human drama. It's very character driven. Yes, very character driven. And um, it's yeah, I thought it was touching. And I mean, I've, I've like I've seen it once since then. Mm-hmm. And so just now is the third time I've seen it. Okay. And yeah, it. it I mean, I never. Nothing's ever as good as the first time I see something. Sure. I find a lot of people say oh, it's better on second viewing, or it's, or it's, or it's, sometimes things are, but mm-hmm. this, this for me was better. The first time I saw it was the best. Yeah. But this, that was the first time you've ever seen Shine. First time I've ever seen Shine. First time I've ever heard of it. Ever heard of it? I, 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 I suggested this to you. In... Yeah, in '97, I was still very young. Yeah, still so young. So young. I don't think. This really impacted my life in any way at the time. Do you think it held up? It does. It does. However, it, I I did feel it was a little bit disjointed. Hmm. Disjointed how? Well, it's always a bit jarring when you when you're seeing one actor because at the beginning you see. David Huffcott as portrayed by Jeffrey Rush in his this was in his 40s I think mm-hmm. and then and you realise that's 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 that, that that's now this is happening now and then you see his story told in flashback um, the story of his childhood and and the relationship with his family specifically his father mm-hmm. he's very um Demanding. Yeah, demanding is one way to put it. Another way to put it is controlling. Controlling, yeah. So you think that having different segments of his life portrayed by different actors helped make it more disjointed? Uh, a little bit. Okay. That's fair. I think they, the three actors that portray this guy... I've forgotten his name already. David Hofgood. David. I think they have dramatically different roles to play. 
because they are portraying him at a particular moment in his life. Yeah. And I, I think you're right that it's quite disjointed. I think. Because the characterization... So when he's... The middle portrayal, which is Noah Taylor, who was... He was pushing 30 when he did that. But he's playing David when he's, like, 18 or 19 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Early 20s. And it's... And the, up to the bit where he has this his little... Where he's playing live and then he kind of has an attack. And he, yeah. It's, it's not like... And then the, the next time you see him, he's... He's kind of... In the next portrayal, by yes, he's kind of. He feels like an, almost like a different character because yeah, absolutely. What, what's that, I get you realize that's because of what's happened to him, leading up to that attack and the aftermath. It's kind of he's become like this. But I thought this was an interesting movie. I yeah. thought it was kind of a difficult movie in that it. It doesn't want to make... If you are not already aware of the context, it's very difficult to get the details of what's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I struggled with the accents a bit, which didn't help. Which accents? The Australian accents. Um, even the English accents, which I am now more familiar with, were yeah. kind of... Yeah, mostly I, I feel like, like you said, this movie has some structural issues with like being segmented into three very different parts of his life, yeah. and we don't really, we're sort of told that there's a transition between each segment, mm-hmm. but we're not really shown it. Yeah. Like we, yeah. It could have done with being longer, do you think? A bit more episodic. Uh, maybe. I think it's not the total length that really hurt it. Like, I don't think it mm. necessarily needs to be totally longer. But I think it could have focused less on very particular parts of... You know, there's it's basically three acts. Mm. And the first act is his childhood, and the second act is his young adulthood, and the third act is his adulthood. And within each act, it focuses really on one sort of plot point. As a child, it's like... It's that first... or Maybe it's not the first, but that that piano competition that he loses. Yeah, yeah. And then the aftermath of that. Being pushed by his father, getting a new teacher, etc. You have to win. Yes. The second act focuses on um, his trying to get away from his father and then Mm -hmm. getting away from his father. Yeah. And the third act is him trying to find a life in the aftermath of this this, uh, mental illness that he lives with. Yeah. I mean... Calling them plot points is sort of a bit much, because not much happens, honestly. It's very character-driven. Yeah. Uh, Which is fine. I think, actually, in this case, it worked really Mm. well. Yeah. But I did... I took a bunch of notes while watching. Oh, good. 
because there were a bunch of things I just did not understand. Okay. So yeah, I noted that it's very character-driven rather than focusing on a plot through the narrative. And uh, like you can sort of describe the narrative as David's triumph over Rachmaninoff, this piece mm -hmm. that his father is trying to get him to play and his teacher doesn't want him to play, he's not ready, etc. Yeah. And then in triumphing over that piece, he's immediately felled by mental illness. Yeah. And then the last act is again his return to like a quote unquote normal life. Yeah. And sort of rebuilding relationships, building his own family. Which in the third act he's very you see, he, he's very open and very, he's very touchy-feely with people when he meets them the first time. Which Gropey. He, yes. <laughs> wow. I think Jeffrey Rush is very good in this because we watched the, the concert at the Oscars that David gave after watching this film. And immediately you can see that uh, Jeffrey Rush really nailed the mannerisms. Mm. I didn't. You watched it. I didn't. Oh, you didn't. But I, I, I saw it in 1997, so I don't. It's so why I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I think I. Yeah, but I do remember vaguely. Um. So like, yeah, I think the movie has some structural issues with like yeah. the pacing and how much time they're spending on specific things rather than mm -hmm. giving us like a continuous flow through the life. I also think that there's maybe something. There's something a bit odd about making a biopic about somebody who's still alive, and so, especially yeah. somebody who's so young. Because he was, what, 40, 50? Yeah. Like, that's mm. that's midlife crisis time. That's not <laughs> biopic time. I mean... Like, at best, your movie can't have an ending. No. I mean, they've, <laughs> they've structured it in a way so that it's kind of... It's... <laughs> He's happy at the end. He's got his. Yeah. He's met his wife, his new wife. Yeah, but I think that, I think that does it a disservice because it feels like rather than having a, a satisfying conclusion, it just sort of peters out. Mm. Like his, the ending is that his father dies, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of closure on that point, though, isn't it? I suppose so, but like that's the the theme of the film running through the film. Yeah, but then, like, it sort of means, so David's mental illness that he's now living with is sort of instantiated and produced by his father as a child, the way he was abused and controlled and manipulated. Mm -hmm. And then with his father's death, now he just has, he's just living with this mental illness, and I feel like that's, that's just like a thread flapping in the wind. It's not tied up neatly. Okay. So a, a possible sequel. <laughs> it might be in the works. We do. <laughs> Coming to you in 2020. Shine 2. But I actually... I find the second... This, the third act is almost like a, a relief. Because it's so harrowing, the second act. Yeah, when he when like when he meets all these in, even when he's in the 
the mental institute. And then he meets that woman. I've forgotten her name. I've forgotten her name as well. I think I wrote it down. It was like Vera or Brenda or something. So Merrill takes them out of the hospital. I don't know the name of his astrologer wife. Oh no, that was <laughs> that. No. Merrill? Merrill. She called Merrill? Yes. Oh. Because he seems so relaxed and happy. I don't know if he seems relaxed. Well, he's not. Doesn't. He's sort of reached a steady state where, like, yeah. he's very clearly sort of struggling he's in not the moment to moment. He's, I mean, he's not, he's not struggling to express himself. Yeah. So. I mean, so. So I think there's a few things in the movie which are not super well explored, like the father's motivation throughout yeah you kind of get an it's kind of you get an idea because you know he's a a german jew who's mm -hmm. presumably fled to australia yes yeah so and his when he talks about when he talks to his wife like about david saying i don't want he talks about my your sisters mm -hmm. my, my sisters or your parents or whatever yeah i think the movie sort of it hints at the idea that his father is traumatized by losing so much of his family in mm -hmm. the Holocaust that now his father is very controlling and he's that comes from a place of being very afraid to lose anybody else. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of mutated in his head to losing them via this industrialized killing machine to losing control over them. Mm -hmm. And he very much takes that out on David, who is simultaneously codependent and uh, quite rebellious mm. in a sense. Like David wants to go to this piano teacher and the father has to sort of grapple with his loss of control and no longer teaching David piano. And David wants to go to America and his father is very much opposed to that. And David wants to go to the Royal Academy of Music and his father is very much opposed to that. And, you know, in each of these battles, one of them wins. And ultimately, when David goes to the Royal Academy, his father, uh, his father sort of symbolically kills him. Yeah. He takes all these newspaper clippings of David and burns them. He says, you are not a part of this family anymore. You will never step foot in this home. So that, I think the movie really wants us to understand the father's motivation from that perspective but i think in order to do so you have to sort of ignore all of the context in which these people live so it's sort of based on the setting based on the house they live in based on the surroundings it's sort of implied that they live in northern australia like the shitty part mm -hmm. um and that they're sort of dirt poor. But what comes with that is living in a tight community, having neighbors that you rely on, having friends that you rely on. And with that in mind, I don't think that that dynamic could actually develop in his father narratively. 
Okay. Like, if they were isolated, if they lived in, like, a shitty little cabin on the edge of the bush, tens of miles away from everywhere else. But maybe they did. They didn't. We saw them. Maybe maybe they did at one point. I mean, not when David's nine years old, so... I think that's... Maybe the dad did. Because we we don't really know the dad's backstory before David came along. So so maybe that's what you're saying. The dad's motivations aren't explored enough. Yeah, I mean, like, this family, this family dynamic that they portray is very specific mm-hmm. of, like, the controlling father, and it's sort of his way or nothing. And I think that dynamic, that sort of abusive dynamic really only occurs when you have no external support network that can challenge it. And we see in the film that there are external support networks that could challenge it. They have close neighbors, you know, we don't see them being friendly with their neighbors, but we see they're physically close, and throughout the film we see that David has outside friends, or develops outside connections from the family. So I think, I don't find the motivation of like extended trauma from living through the Holocaust for his father to be a totally satisfying explanation for this dynamic. I mean, did you... Did you see what his, his father's behavior and think, okay, this makes sense in the context of the film, given what we know and what we're seeing? I mean, that's the first time I've ever really I mean, I definitely think there's like a con- what the movie wants us to think, I think is definitely like a part of it. But I think there has to be more explanation. Yeah, because it's a true story, so you figure how much of it's true, and if it if it is, it kind of needs. It should. See, the more we talk about this, the more I think it should be like a like a Gandhi Lawrence of Arabia three hour thing. It kind of (laughs) tells all this. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, maybe it really should be a lot longer and we sort of get to spend more time with the characters because it's it is sort of structured more like a pop piece than a serious dramatic biopic mm-hmm. so yeah i had a problem with the father's motivation i also so in the context of like a real person's life this is not a sensible question to ask but for a movie it is so i'm going yeah, to ask yeah. it anyway but why did david have a breakdown Especially then. Well, I just don't know. Because part of me was thinking, well, he's he's kind of in a, he should be in a good place because he's mm-hmm. he's he's at the what kind of name is he? Yep. He's getting all this great attention. They think he's good. Yep. He's away from his abusive father. He's really impressing everyone. We get the impression during the scene that he's, you know, he's playing Rachmaninoff and it's like a super difficult piece. We get the impression during the scene that 
everyone is absolutely enthralled. Mm -hmm. That he's this virtuoso. They're so pleased. I think the only honor, honest answer I can give to this is he had a breakdown at that moment for dramatic tension. Which I find that's really unsatisfying for me. Did you do any research into it? Into like the actual no. what actually happened to him? No, I didn't really. Yeah, because I don't you actually care about I don't care about his life story. I care about the movie of his life story. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know. Like it, it really it feels like to me that it's just for dramatic tension. There's maybe like a symbolism that he's finally triumphed yeah. over this difficult piece. And it's right around off and then yeah. yeah, that like in triumphing over this hindrance that his father placed in his path, he is finally he's finally defeated his father in some symbolic way. But then I don't understand why that would fell him. But then maybe maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it was Ragmaninoff. Yeah, the teacher kept saying he's not ready. He's not ready for it. And then oh, so like he's still not ready. Yeah, it's it's done this to him. Keep doing it. It's finished him off. He wasn't ready. Maybe. Maybe. So Rachmaninoff got the better of him. And, and his father got the better of him. Yeah. Maybe. That That's... It's still a symbolic answer, but it's yeah. slightly more satisfying yeah. than just dramatic tension. <laughs> I mean, there's also the question of was he fainting every time that he practiced the piece? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Like, it's... It's a very particular choice, and it sort of sets up the rest of his life. So I find it kind of... There needed to be something there, and they don't sort of explore it, or don't explain it, and I I didn't like it. So from then, he has uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Yes. Which is still used today, because it is one of the more effective treatments for some mental illnesses. Um, and it, yeah, I don't think it quite looks how it's depicted in the film. No, probably not. That looked kind of barbaric. Uh, and then we, we get to Jeffrey Rush playing him in mm -hmm. the hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's wandering around and it's implied that he sort of misses the piano, that he can't really express himself mm -hmm. without it. And he hears this woman playing a little ditty on the piano. Yes, this this woman Meryl. Are you sure she's called Meryl? I wrote Meryl. So Meryl, I'm confident it's Meryl, uh, takes him out of the hospital when she realizes who he is. It's kind of unclear how the fuck a random stranger can sign somebody out of a hospital like that and just take them. Uh, it's not really explained or explored. <laughs> I feel like that is... An ethical breach. And I think this Meryl character... Beryl. Beryl? Beryl. Beryl? Beverly done as Beryl Asket. Yeah, it was Beryl. You just misheard the, the, the B. Wow. Okay. Beryl? <laughs> Fucking Beryl. <laughs> I knew it wasn't Meryl. I knew. I knew um, so Beryl takes him out of the hospital... She takes him home. She's simultaneously, like, caretaker and friend. And I think she's 
also sort of like a bit of a romantic interest. Like yeah, well that's that, that yeah. You kind of get the impression there is yeah. Like when he feels her up in the in the in the yeah. church. I don't think she. I don't think she's reciprocating. I think she's just sort of tolerating his groping, because yeah, she's like, oh, you're a famous pianist. Maybe she thinks she can get something from this relationship by like caring for him. Maybe she can like get money or something. It, it, it's not really obvious why she's no. doing this. Um, again, I think she's a fairly unmotivated character. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, so during the second act, David has this friend, Catherine. Yes. Who, I don't understand who mm. she is in the, in the <laughs> film. She's like... She was a real person, presumably. Yeah, but like they met because she's the head of some Soviet society in Australia. Well, she is. I was never. We never confirmed that was a sick. I think it's sort of implied. It it's very strange. Yeah, I I, I really don't understand it. Um, but she was his his mentor. Yes, she was his mentor. He simultaneously sort of treated her as a friend. And as a mother figure, because his mother is quite distant, she's very much controlled by mm-hmm. the father as well. Um, and I think Catherine is also uh, a bit of a romantic awakening for David. I think I don't think it's sort of explicit in the text of the film, but the way that they relate and the way the the intimacy of their relationship. It's not strictly maternal, because it's not like she's just giving him no, affection. No. He's giving her quite a bit of affection as well. So I think it's sort of... It's like, well, it's like an understanding between artists. Really. Yeah. Yeah. They just understand each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that Beryl... Yeah. Beryl. I think Beryl is sort of... Her character... Kind of echoes Kath- Catherine's character from before, where or David is trying to make her into Catherine two point oh. Yeah, well, she's a bit more his own age as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think David is sort of just stuck at a very young age internally. He's much older now, but yeah. I don't think he he hasn't emotionally progressed since his time at the Royal Academy, so he mm-hmm. still feels quite young. Mm-hmm. So I thought Beryl. Strange character, unmotivated, but also really essential for the rest of the film. Yeah. Like she got him out of the hospital. Yeah. Otherwise, this film yeah. sort of ends with him getting bed sores. Um, I've already forgotten what happened to Beryl. What, 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 how, how did he meet um, Lynn Redgrave, character whose name we've forgotten already? So he's staying with the Beryl at Beryl's house. He's helping her play piano for the church. I think he wanders off one day, and he goes, oh, I'm not sure, actually. He's all, I mean, he meets a wings on the trampoline, doesn't he? Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. Was, no there's a transition. Was, yes. So, Beryl is somehow out of the picture, and yeah. David is staying in this, like, hotel care it's home the, thing. It's the woman he, he meets at the beginning in the bar. 
Yeah, so he's staying in this... His name is or something? Yeah. So he's Sylvia. told to go outside and get some exercise. He yeah. follows some runners wearing a trench coat, which is not at all <laughs> acceptable behavior. If you are wearing a trench coat, you do not chase after anybody because you look fucking weird. <laughs> uh, and he winds up in the rain, banging on a restaurant that's closed. And this waitress, who is uh, inexplicably kind, yeah, helps him, takes him home. Eventually, he comes to live with her or stay with her for a bit. Mm, yeah. And then she has a... She's friends with Lynn Redgrave, whose character is called... Um, um, it's called Jillian. Jillian the, Jillian. the astrologist. Jillian the astrologer comes to stay with a very kind friend. And from the moment they met, I said this during the movie... <laughs> Are they going to fuck? <laughs> They're going to get married. Um, because he meets her while he's jumping on a trampoline wearing nothing but a trench coat. Yeah. His dick full on flopping around. She probably had a good look, didn't she? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, she couldn't not. <laughs> She'd have to like turn around and get in a car and drive away <laughs> to not see But it was it, like an instant kind of attraction, do you think? I think she was immediately charmed by him yeah. because he's so warm and open. It's sort of implied in a conversation with her friend that uh, she has a good relationship with this finance guy that she's seeing. Yeah. He's proposed. Oh, yeah. She's got a ring. Yes. She's got a That's fat rock. kind of kind of shoved down the audience's throat a bit. Yeah. It? Quite a bit. Uh, but it's sort of implied. Oh, I think the specific detail that he's in finance is meant to imply that he's like cold and calculated versus he's, David, yeah. who is very warm and open and uh, gropey. <laughs> maybe she likes that. Maybe. Uh, I'm not here to yuck I mean, the woman anyone's yawn. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. I think she's charmed immediately, and then it takes some time for her to sort of get past the very upfront strangeness of david but i don't i don't think it does take time i think it happens because it's so near the end of the film you there's that one scene where yeah it does sort of happen in like the span of five minutes doesn't it yeah but i thought i thought that's a lovely performance from lynn redgrave because yeah it's not it's not it doesn't look like she's acting no and you can kind of see her reacting to him and kind of falling in love with him really really yeah. and it's and it's 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 beautiful it's gorgeous yeah it's um it's a very good performance there is a one specific scene which i was like oh fuck off <laughs> where she is home back at her place uh and she's doing david's astrology chart and she's putting in his name uh, and she's, his playing, with the, she and she's the fiddling with her yeah. ring and then she sort of takes it off and looks at it. And then she looks back at the screen. And it's like, fuck off. I mean, you did like, not fall in love with him by doing his astrology chart. It, it's a very strange conception of how relationships actually develop. Like, um, it's like when people watch um, that Woody Allen movie. Uh, That's quite a few movies. I know. <laughs> the, the one with the marriage. And then they're on the bus leaving. And she's in a wedding dress and he's sitting next to her and he's just wrecked her her wedding. It's like when people watch that movie 
and they think the ending is romantic. I'm sure it's a very famous film. (laughs) The only film that sounds like is The Graduate. No, no. Which is not a Woody Allen film. I'm pretty sure it's actually Woody Allen in the scene I'm thinking of. Okay, I might not know which movie this is. (laughs) It might not be Woody Allen. Um... Well, anyway. Anyway, that, there's a famous that's... movie where, like, somebody shows up and he wrecks this this wedding and then the bride runs away with him and they get on the bus and the final shot is them on the bus and the bride sort of realizing that she's just tanked her wedding. And that is the, the grand, that is the, the, that is what happens at the end of The Graduate. Is it really? That's totally what happens at the end of The Graduate. Okay. So it's The Graduate. It is The Graduate. <laughs> okay. Um, a lot of people watch that and they think that the ending is romantic, that these two lovebirds have run away together, but it sort of requires having a very strange conception of how relationships develop. Whereas, like, if you consider how relationships actually develop and you look at the narrative of that movie, the ending is really quite sad because this this young woman who's just thrown away a good relationship that's been developing for a long time for some random dude she's just met recently. And I think that sort of misconception is also at play here, where in order for her to throw away this developed relationship where they are intending to get married, she's got this fat rock on her finger. In order for her to throw that away because she met him once and did his chart, and now she's like, oh, I love him. I think that's... Maybe... So I don't see it that way. I I think if she was in this relationship... Because we do get some clues from her that she's she's got children, so she's so it's not her first yeah. relationship. So we can take anything from that. Maybe she was looking to be with someone, and she just met this guy in finance and thought, yeah, and then she got engaged. But then she met David, and it was, and she just got maybe she maybe she, maybe she just got good vibes from David and thought, okay. Maybe I need to reconsider this this engagement. Mm, maybe. I mean, I don't... I think that requires a lot more work on the part of the audience in order to make that sort of fit, rather than having a very realistic conception of how relationships develop and like the conditions under which well, people... Well, it works on me, and I don't have a realistic... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's romantic. I didn't. I was... I was kind of annoyed when I saw it, um, which is fine. Like, this is based on real life, so presumably something similar to this happened mm. in some way. I can't remember at, w- at which point that happens in the film. Was it after? It's not just after they'd met, was it? It was after they'd met again since. Weren't they? No. So basically, she stayed with the friend. She was there. It was implied for like a week or two, maybe. Mm. So she's spending that time with David as well. And then she's leaving, and David kisses her. Yeah. And she's like crying in the back of this car, waving goodbye at him, which is like, you spent two weeks with a man who is not entirely in control of his faculties. It is, I think, irresponsible for somebody who is in control for with the, of their faculties to sort of take that time as, like, the basis of a relationship. I mean, see, I disagree. I think 
you can't. You just can't. <laughs> you can't criticize you can't. love. No, you can't. <laughs> because there's no. You can't say there's a set way that things these things work, and I I I, I believe that that could happen. Yeah, I do, I don't think it's unrealistic. I think it's unsatisfying narratively. Okay, but that's because I am a soulless you have bastard. <laughs> I have another question for you. Okay. Why does his dad show up towards the end of the film? Well, I thought about this. Because I, I decided that just because you get a change of conscience. And it's not like, and he's, he was back in Australia by this point. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to go all the way over to London. See, I don't think he had a change of heart based on what he says when he shows up. Because he says... I always talk, when he talks about the violin. Not just the violin, but he says, and I quote, no one will ever love you like I do. Which is not something you say to someone if you have had a change of heart and you've recognized that your behavior in the past was bad and you want to free them of the burden of that past relationship. So maybe he was trying to Back. Yeah, so based on the timing, so David was back in the paper and his father saw it and I think mm, that's what motivated yeah. his father to come. I think this is his father showing up to initiate the process of regaining control mm -hmm. over his son. Um, yeah. And I think the violin story also try plays into that. Which we had to have explained to us because neither of us caught it in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but he was over it by this point. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, I think narratively it works because David yeah. is now a much stronger person mm -hmm. and he's able to resist his father's attempt to undermine him and control yeah. him again. Um, how he's able to do that is sort of not obvious. It, I think the movie kind of implies that David is able to resist his father's attempt at control because David is no longer totally tethered to the here and now. Yes. And also he's got support. And he's got support. And I think that is good, but I think the part where it sort of implies that because David is not tethered to the here and now, he's able to resist mm -hmm. his attempt at control. I think that's kind of gross. I mean, I would go... I, would, I didn't even think about that until you suggested it. It's, I, I, it's the support aspect yeah. that gives him the strength to do what he suggests. Yeah. So. I think that... I think the scene was overall quite good, but I think that point in particular probably could have been rewritten slightly so that it was more obvious that David is stronger now because he has support and not because he is untethered. So <laughs> I asked this at the time. The final shot in the movie is uh, David and Gillian at David's father's grave. Which is apparently the actual grave. Of his dad. Oh. That's what Roger Ebert said in his review. That's what he thought. Hmm. I suppose that's an interesting yeah. detail. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't they use it? Yeah, I guess. Um, but also, the aria that plays during that scene 
also played in an earlier scene. And I can't remember which one. No, I can't remember either. Which is, A, not a good sign. <laughs> but B, that makes me think that there is some sort of important thematic uh, connection between those two scenes because the musical choice is the same. Yeah. Not even similar, but the same. Uh, and that it doesn't immediately resonate. In, no. Is, is, uh, after three viewings, I still didn't yeah. get this. So I might have to watch it again. Yeah. So I thought that was a weird choice. And it seemed too specific to be unintentional. And if it's intentional, then I think it needed to be more obvious. Not only in the musical choice, but like thematically or something. Have you exhausted your notes? No, I have one more point. Okay. It's that the makeup and wigs in this movie are pretty bad. Oh, the aging, or the not aging, yeah. of some of the characters. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, the concert at the end, Dave is giving, and his mother is there looking... <laughs> looking fucking spry. <laughs> and also his old shooter from... Yeah. Not looking too bad either. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh... In the second act, there's a scene where David is in a strip club, I think, with some mates from university. Mm. <laughs> it's very strange. I have no idea what the significance is. But at one point, David sort of looks around the room, and there's just this one woman sitting at a corner, smoking a cigarette, and staring straight at him, right at the camera. I don't get that. And that's, that's Mark Warren playing it. It's a man in drag. Okay. But also... And then he wakes up at Trafalgar Square wearing a bit of the the feather boa that this... Of that character's boa. Character. Oh, I see. So they're going for like a trans baby kind of bullshit thing. Yeah, I guess. Well, that's gross. Also, you could see his lace when he's in the club. Like, in a strip club, the lights aren't bright. You should not be able to see the lace on his wig. And also, he looked like a brick. At first, I was like, oh, that's a very handsome woman. <laughs> but now that I know it's a man, oh, you're a brick. So, that's strange. I, yeah, the makeup and wigs, not good. This was directed by Scott Hicks. And I realised, I've, I've, apart from this film, I don't know what else he did. Hmm. So I'm going to... Mm. Let's see what else he did. But it's the, uh, what did you think of the acting overall? I thought the acting was really excellent overall. Mm -hmm. Even uh, the child actor during the first act. Yeah. You know, child actors are a bit here and there. They're not. Even when they're good, they don't really have the depth to portray a lot of the things that they're meant to. And I think this actor did a very good job, perhaps because the role is quite limited. David has a very specific behavioral set, a very specific set of, very very specific range of emotions that are sort of permissible because of mm -hmm. his controlling father. So maybe that made the role easier, but either way, I think the acting overall was really, really strong. I mean, there was some nice, some nice cameos from veterans as well. Like Googie Withers as Catherine in her last film role. Hmm. And John Gilgood as the old 
What was it you said about her mill? The old queen music teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I think I said, like, this is what Australians think England is like. (laughs) It's just a bunch of old queens sipping tea. Because, yeah, that, that... that professor looked like a cross between uh, Derek Jacoby and Patrick Stewart. And I stand by this. I mean, that was Dawn Gilbert, who's like one of the, the great knights of the stage. So of great influence to Derek Jacoby. Mm-hmm. Jacoby. Who's the other one? Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. I just mean like in the face. Yeah. Like if you... <laughs> I'm sure... Well, I'm sure... I'm sure he's not related to them. No, of course not. But I mean, if that's the first time somebody's made that comparison. I've never heard that before, so... Because... Uh, well, I can uh, see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So overall, I thought the acting was very strong. Um, the pacing, I think, has some issues, and I think there's a couple of spots where the writing could make things less ambiguous. Yeah to the, the improvement of the overall story. Yeah. And I think it suffers from the issue of a biopic being made of a living person where you don't have an ending. Yes. But, uh, I mean, but those have always been... Have you ever seen Coal Miner's Daughter? No. It's about Loretta Lynn, the country star, mm-hmm. who uh, had a really difficult childhood, got married when she was 15, lived in a trailer with her husband from that age and had about six kids or something by the time she was she was a grandma by the time she was 29 or something oh jeez but she became the, the biggest okay. the biggest country and western mm. star of her day and she was like not even 50 when there was that film made yeah I mean I don't I understand why and Sissy Spacek won an Oscar for playing it see that's that's the thing play a real person win an Oscar yeah I mean, like, I understand why they make biopics of living people, because when those living people are still popular, you can sort of guarantee a big audience for Mm -hmm. that movie. But I think narrative structure suffers because of it. Just fundamentally. I think there's, like, a hard limit on what you can do. I always say you shouldn't write biographies about people who are still alive, just because... The story is unfinished. Yeah. Yeah. Same principle. The ending of every biopic is that the person dies. Unless you write it too early, in which case you don't know how. It's like I was saying about Gandhi and Lawrence Arabian. Mm-hmm. So you can make it a three hour epic and yeah. tell the whole story. If you can sit through them. Yeah, I don't think I've seen either of those. Well, <laughs> for a future. <laughs> We could do a double feature, just six hours of movie. I think Lawrence Rave is three and a half hours. Jesus Christ. It's it's very good. I did watch it over Christmas though, so I'm not ready for it again. Okay, good. But Gandhi, <laughs> I've not seen for years, actually. Hmm. Okay. So, maybe. So, you've not ruined it for me, but it's given me more stuff to consider and to think about. So I will go back to it one day. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't hate it. No. It's not my favourite movie. I probably won't watch it again. Have you seen much Australian cinema? No. Does it make you want to watch more Australian cinema? No, not really. But I think that's sort of because of the genre. Um, I think 
I would be very interested in watching Australian cinema that sort of played into uh, sort of the the history of colonization and especially how that impacts the sort of regional conflicts that exist, like, you know, with the, the Northern Territories, which are not an Australian mm. state, they're a territory, um, and how that is sort of where poor people wind up and where uh, a lot of Aboriginal peoples are sort of being pushed to, to get, because they're being pushed out of densely populated settler regions. Mm. So I would be very interested in cinema that sort of explored those aspects. The, the, uh, the origins of Australia. Yeah, actually, like a historical drama about uh, the colonization of Australia would be very interesting, especially if it was like critical about yeah, the whole thing. that's worth looking into. Because I don't, can't think of, the first film I thought of when you were saying that was Walkabout, but that's not, it's not, about the history of colonization, but it's about two English children who go, who accompany their dad on a, who's, who's working or something, and they go missing, mm. and they end up hanging out with Aborigines or something. I haven't seen it for years, but that might be one we can look at. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there are whole genres dedicated to colonization of the u.s we call them westerns yeah but they are not critical of no them. they're killing indians yeah it's very much let's kill the indians the yeah. indians are bad it's the history of colonization from the colonizers yeah, perspective yeah. which is i think deeply uninteresting kind of an immoral thing to to consume yeah. at this point yeah so overall i quite liked it it's kind of interesting it has some minor issues throughout i won't watch it again okay so no one's ruined anything not since Waterworld. not since i did ruin that for you didn't i yes good, good. <laughs> i mean it ruined itself but you were <laughs> but you helped <laughs> um yeah i think uh, the next one I'm going to make you watch is yeah. going to continue the sort of apocalyptic sort of theme. Oh, God. But I think you're actually going to love it. Okay. Because it's, I think it's one of the best movies of the last 20 years, at least. Drink a clue? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there are two clues in what I just said that Apocalypse. No. 20 years. Okay, I'll think about it. Okay. I'll try and figure it out. Okay. okay. Until next time. Okay, so yeah. So that was Shine. You thought it was. It, it, it was, was okay. It was okay. It was, yeah. I still think it's good. I'll, I'll give it. I'll watch it again. Okay. Good. Right. Good. Right. <laughs> I'll see you next time. Until next time. <laughs>